Welcome to the J.P. Morgan Global Data Pod. I'm Michael Hansen from Global Economic Research, and today I'm joined by my colleagues Sajit Chinoy, Catherine Marnie, and Vinnie Marina. Today's research wrap is a broad global discussion of the building El Nino phenomenon and what it might mean for economies across the globe. So let me start. I'll summarize a bit of what's going on in terms of El Nino, what it is, uh, how uh, strong climate scientists think it might get later this year and into next, and then I'll turn to my colleagues and we'll talk about the implications for uh, the global economy and certainly some specific economies as well. So El Nino is a, a natural weather phenomenon. It occurs um, fairly frequently every two to seven years. It represents a rising sea surface temperatures uh, and drops in air pressure, basically along the coast of South America and then over large parts of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, there's a variety of ways it can be measured. The Oceanic Nino Index uh, is a common one. Uh, that looks at deviations of average temperature uh, in degrees Celsius um, over a three-month period. And typically, whenever that is about one and a half degrees Celsius or more above the average, that's identified as a significant El Nino event. Um, that typically happens once or twice a decade. Uh, historically, since 1950, uh, we've seen a number of, of large El Nino events uh, above two degrees Celsius, uh, including in 2015, 2016. Uh, and we've seen other significant events in other years, including one that was about one and a half uh, degrees uh, above normal in uh, 29, or 2009 and 2010. Uh, and that'll set us up for some episodic discussion we'll have in a few minutes here. Right now, climate scientists have been warning that we could have another potentially strong El Nino event later this year and into next, as I mentioned. Um, the U.S. National uh, Oceanic and Atmospheric administration is predicting uh, that we're going to see a, basically for certainty an El Nino event of at least half a degree Celsius or more uh, by the end of this year. They see a 50% or better chance of a significant deviation that is at least one and a half degrees higher between November and January or February this year. And they put about a one in five chance of a quote unquote historically strong El Nino, which would be at least two degrees uh, Celsius. So with that as context, it's worth noting that uh, we have seen, and you can see it in the corresponding piece, an upward drift, it seems, in the kind of severity of El Ninos. Uh, the peaks have been a little higher. I think that probably reflects the fact that you are seeing an upward trend in, in global ocean temperatures. Uh, and the El Ninos tend to be stronger than the La Ninos, which is what we're coming out of right now. So with that as kind of a backdrop, it is worth noting that uh, not only do El Ninos vary over time, but their impacts have varied fairly widely. Uh, both across different parts of the world as well as uh, over time in space. And so this is probably a good time to hand off to uh, Sajid and talk a little bit about what we're seeing specifically in India. Then you talk a little bit about what we're seeing in Latin America and, and we'll go to the conversation there. Thanks very much, Mike. I think the impact in India is mainly felt through El Nino suppressing rainfall. Now, India has two major agricultural crop seasons. There's the, the, the monsoon season we're undergoing, which is June through September. There's a winter cropping season, uh, you know, from uh, November to about April. And the reason this matters is if you do get depressed rainfall, then that not just not only does it affect production, uh, agricultural production, and therefore growth and food prices in the in the monsoon period, but because it affects reservoir levels before because it affects uh, you know groundwater levels, it has a meaningful impact later in the year in the winter crop which rely largely on uh, groundwater. And so this impact, therefore, is, is, is meaningful uh, across the year. Now, it's important to point out that there's no you know, linear relationship between uh, El Ninos and monsoons. Um, uh, you know, every drought in India has been an El Nino year. 
but not every El Nino year has been a drought year. I think it's important to understand that asymmetry and the effects itself are also very varied. In 2009, 10, uh, you know, we had El Nino uh, and India had, uh, you know, massive food inflation running 13, 14%. Uh, in 2015 16, another El Nino year, another drought year, but food inflation was at 5%. So many things matter. How much rain we get, when the shortfall occurs, uh, geographically, how this is distributed, uh, and what the policy response is. So I think there are many caveats to this. Now, what are we seeing this year? The worry was that we'd see a rainfall shortage. Thankfully, we bucked that now. Uh, we, the monsoon got off to a slow start in June, made up a lot of ground in July. And so we're actually sitting halfway through the monsoon with rainfalls 4% above normal. That said, there are some flags lurking. Uh, uh, the Indian Met Department has already said that August is going to be subpar. And this matters hugely because the, 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 the sowing has happened. And we've seen sowing for most crops has been uh, a normal, but sowing for pulses, India is the largest producer, consumer, importer of pulses is already 11% below normal. So the worry is if we do get a, uh, you know, a monsoon a short, a rainfall shortage in August and September, that could meaningfully affect um, uh, you know, yield levels, therefore affect production, uh, therefore affect prices, and also affect the winter crop, as I mentioned. However, as we'll talk later in the program, I'm sure uh, there are many buffers in place. We've got buffers for many food crops and we can also import some things. But this is a risk. I just conclude by saying, you know, um, we've already seen multiple supply shocks the last three years. COVID was an adverse supply shock. India as a large commodity importer meant the terms of trade shock from the war last year was an adverse supply shock. The last thing we need is a third adverse supply shock in the form of uh, a subpar monsoon. Yeah, so it, I think it's a it's a good time for us to compare with what what's happening in Latam and 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 there's a reason why the for for the Onio name and and why Latam is one of the most affected regions and and I think that there's a also a difference within the region and and you know the Onio has uh, you know make the short northern parts of the region drier and some of the southern parts wetter and and this tend to provide some benefit to crops in the south. Uh, but brought uh, in countries such as Colombia, Panama, and Venezuela. And Brazil, you know, which is a major commodity exporter, it tends to generate higher temperatures in the Midwest, where, you know, the large share of the commodity crops are. And in the Southwest, where the water reservoirs are, and those water reservoirs are also used for electricity generation, and, and they're key for the economic activity in that region, which is you know, the most industrialized region uh, in Latin America. And uh, so I, I, I think that also, as Sajid mentioned, you know, there's differences between the, the episodes. Uh, it's, it, uh, it's, you know, it's striking to me that there's a mirror image of what happened in the sense that Latin America was more affected in 2015 and 2016 than in 2008, 2009, 2010. When, you know, for example, Colombia and Brazil, Katie and I, we wrote about that uh, back, back, back then. You know, was uh, was one, one of the factors driving inflation higher in the region uh, was the El Nino. In the 2009-2010, this was much less pronounced. So, in general, what I would say is that the, you know the bias in the region is for higher inflation, uh, and perhaps even slightly lower GDP in Brazil, uh, depending on the impact of the crops and the energy gen generation, of course. 
but the extent and magnitude uh, of such impact is still quite uncertain. Um, it depends on initial conditions, but there's other other things that sometimes they are overlooked in the region that you know are important. Uh, for example, this having rainfall, it tends to, or it can at least damage some infrastructure in Chile and Peru, uh, but we are not expecting a strong impact there. But that, that's another angle of the El Nino that, that can have repercussions on the commodity exporters uh, in Latin America. Yeah, and I mean, if I can just add on there, you know, uh, as Vinny said, when, when we covered this in uh, in LATAM in 2015-16, I mean, Colombia was another one that was was badly impacted. And, and you know, as we said, one of the main channels is food prices, but um, it's also related to energy prices in the sense that, you know, in, in Colombia and Brazil, they're both um, dependent on hydropower. And so when you have droughts and re reservoir levels fall, um, the impact of El Nino can spread beyond beyond food prices. Um, and again, that episode was a bit noisy because we had also, you know, uh, FX weakness and we had just, you know, large recession in Brazil, but, um, you know, it is fair to say that the, the you know, the large uh, increase in food and energy prices did start to pass through to, for example, services prices. Um, and so, um, again, it, it's, it's a situation where the impacts can be nonlinear. They depend very much on episode, but it's also important to say that, in some cases, the impact isn't just uh, isn't just isolated to food prices um, in some of these economies. What I will say in terms of the other economies that we look at globally, uh, so we we did talk about India and Brazil, and and when we ran a set of regressions, uh, Vinny, you know, Vinny took the lead on that. Uh, we did find that you know EM inflation and EM GDP tends to be more sensitive to El Nino than in DM. Again, this could just be that EM economies have a larger share of, say, agriculture and their GDPs. They're, they're you know, they're, they're more dependent on primary on primary sectors. Uh, it could also be just that food uh, food uh, is a larger part of consumer baskets. I mean, in, in India, it's what, 45 percent in a budget, something like that. Um, yeah, 26 percent. Yep. Exactly. And then, you know, in, in other in other parts of EM, it's 30, it's around 30 percent, um, whereas in DM, it's, you know, 15. And so, you know, if, if food prices is the main channel and EM has a larger portion of food, then, it, you know, it's it's pretty easy to to to, to guess what the impact would be. Um, what I'll say, you know, in terms of other parts of the world, uh, so we touched on Latin, we talked, we touched on India, uh, in, in, in South Africa, you know, that's been another, that's another place where we, we have seen droughts related to El Nino. Um, but it's interesting, our, our South Africa economist, Sonia, um, has pointed out to us that, you know, historically the impacts, um, outside of food have been pretty limited. Um, and actually, you know, this this time around, they're feeling like, you know, crop levels are good, the reservoirs are well filled. And so, uh, again, the risk you would see uh, a large episode is, is, is um, you know, would be would be lessened. But again, they haven't made a formal forecast on that yet, because the, it's still evolving. Uh, in terms of the rest of EM Asia outside of India, again, that's where, um, you know, it, there is um, we haven't seen a strong historical impact and that that plays out in our regressions um, compared to say LATAM and, and India uh, and again there it, it's where you know where we can really point to say you know food inventories and other policy levers that that governments can lean on in order to mitigate some of the impact of El Nino um, on say agricultural shortfalls. The last one I'll say is really just that, you know, for, for DM economies, we didn't see much of an impact. Um, you know, in, in Australia, we might see some, 
we might see some, um, you know, some marginal upside um, because, you know, that that is another country that can be impacted by droughts. But again, it's not it's not going to be super notable. Um, and so, uh, again, I think I think, you know, the bottom line for us here is that uh, and this plays out in our regressions that you know there are specific countries that can be impacted. Um, but again, you know, the effects are nonlinear. They vary very much by episode. Um, they merit, they, they, they vary by the strength of the episode, by the timing, the buffers in place and other regional disparities. And so, you know, at this point, we don't have strong confidence, but we can say that, you know, it, it can matter in, in specific contexts. And Katie, you, you mentioned South Africa and one channel that uh, we discussed with Sonia and that, that, that had some similarities with Brazil is that, Sometimes you also have, you know, shortage of water, so tap water, and in the sense mm -hmm. that in South Africa they had, you know, a, a problems with tourism flows because of that, and in Brazil back in 2015, 2016, you know, the largest city in the country had water shortages as well. So maybe even if to to extend that, uh, the inflation impact may be limited, and, and GDP impact may be limited depending on the situation, uh, the well-being of the population uh, to to some extent may be affected uh, by, by those kind of phenomena. But, but I think that's, that, that, that wraps up the, the, the discussion, those, those specific discussions of, of the potential effects here. Uh, one thing that uh, we in Brazil see as well is that you know, it, it's, the, there is an indirect impact through commodity prices. And I think that uh, it's something that Mike investigated and would be, would be nice for us to, to, to tap on right now. Yeah, thanks, Vinny. I think it, it's important if we kind of take the context of everything you guys discussed and recognize that a lot of the focus tends to be on food in terms of the agricultural prices, agricultural commodity prices that are impacted. And that certainly is an important channel that you all talked about. We'll kind of circle back to what we think this might mean for the inflation outlook in a minute or two here. But I think it is important to recognize that it's not simply food that is potentially impacted. So we looked across uh, a kind of longer history of data from the, the World Bank that went back across a wide range of indicators into the 50s and 60s. You did see uh, you know, a range of non-energy commodity prices that were meaningfully correlated with a bit of a lag, right? Typically El Nino hits and then with a couple quarters or maybe as many as four or five quarters, uh, you get a response to commodity prices. But you actually saw some meaningful responses, and I think it was alluded to a little bit earlier, in raw material prices. So this is things like timber or cotton, rubber, right? These are obviously not things that you're uh, consuming at the dinner table. These are things that can very much have an impact uh, on uh, you know, broader inflationary channels on goods inflation, right? And as was pointed out, uh, certainly by Vinny there at the end, but throughout the conversation, there's channels through which, whether it's droughts in some countries or flooding in others, you can have impact on uh, energy networks, on transportation networks. Um, certainly, it was mentioned hydroelectric, uh, but also tourism, resource extraction. I mean, the, the potential impact in the economy is, is not trivial here, right? This, of course, very much depends upon how large the El Nino is. We're still waiting to see. And then it very much depends upon a, a number of other factors. I want to kind of bring it back to kind of a maybe a little bit more overarching discussion about sort of what are the things that might be offsetting this El Nino impact, and then talk a little bit about the timing as well, because uh, Sajid suggested that maybe we're already seeing impacts in India, um, but I think given what we've seen more generally, uh, we probably want to recognize the impacts may not really be felt until later this year or early next year. And so given that we're kind of expecting inflation globally to cool over the next several months, 
the risk is that you know things will look better before they potentially have the possibility of a little, a little bit worse. So I think it's interesting to just kind of circle back and talk about what factors may be exacerbating or mitigating some of those risks for you guys. So whoever wants to jump in first, maybe Sajid. Thanks, Mike. I think it's important that, as you said, even though the actual impact may happen later in the year, uh, the anticipation of that event actually, you know, from a forward-looking perspective, drives up prices today. So what you're already seeing in India is that the worry that, you know, um, uh, potentially um, the rains are, uh, you know, deficient in the next couple of months has all has already meant that, you know, pulse prices and rice prices uh, have begun to pick up. Now, uh, that said, there are mitigating factors here. Uh, and I'm going to point to two of them at least. One is that the government holds large stocks, large stocks of, of rice, large stocks of wheat. Uh, and so these can be offloaded in the open, open market. We're already seeing that in the case of rice to try and depress prices. So there are buffer stocks here. And I think that will play a crucial role. I'm much less concerned about rice, A, because there are buffer stocks. Uh, B, uh, uh, you actually, and, and rice uh, uh, sowing so far has been above normal, uh, unlike pulses. Now, the, the second one is, is a double-edged sword because India, uh, India is the world's largest rice exporter, right? If I'm not mistaken. So 40% of global rice exports come from India. And, uh, you know, given that there are concerns about uh, the monsoon and the unavailability of or, or shortfall in production, the government has, you know, banned certain kinds of rice exports. And that amounts to, you know, about 45% of uh, India's rice exports so this is then almost 20 percent of world rice exports so so this will be an offset to cool domestic inflation but creates a risk for global rice inflation given uh, india's role in rice exports yeah in 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 the case of brazil and also you know trying to contrast and compare as as, as sajid was mentioning i think that you know what we found is that in the, in the initial conditions matter and in you know, the initial conditions in Brazil, they are quite supportive in the sense that we had three years of very strong harvests. Uh, you know, the reservoirs, the water reservoirs are replenished. Those factors could aid in absorbing the shock. Uh, for example, you know, Brazil has less leeway or uh, you know, less of those uh, kind of uh, uh, inventories of foods that you have in Asia. Um, the government doesn't hold large inventories of that, but you know, the anecdotal evidence we have this year is that this, you know, the, the crops this year and in the last one were so massive that you know a large share of those grains uh, they should not be exported until the end of the year and beginning of next year when the next crop comes in, right? And and you know this is also because of of course because of infrastructure bottlenecks but it's it's a fact that uh, all all of those uh, uh, kind of grains they will be stocked somewhere waiting to be exported so in the sense uh, uh, you know this may be a blessing in disguise where you have inventory en route to the to the ports and if you have some some kind of shortage you can use this to cushion some of the impact in, in in the country and when it comes to the to the water reservoirs you know we, we mentioned and, and mike mentioned katie as well that you know 70 percent of brazil's electricity comes from hydropower generation and because of high temperatures and droughts uh, some of the regions in brazil can be affected uh and in 2016, what happened in Brazil in was that there was a large effect from El Nino back then, was also because Brazil had been facing like three to four years of droughts before the El Nino hit. 
Uh, so, you know, the country had no spare capacity to, to, to let go. And now there is, uh, you know, the, 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 there is also some spare capacity on fuel generated electricity, but this is costlier. And, and in, the, in the end, what makes is that you don't have shortages of electricity or you don't have a high risk of shortages of electricity, but you may have higher costs. And that's uh, that's where you know the secondary impacts come in, as as Katie mentioned. You know, uh, electricity is a key input everywhere, services, industries, uh, you name it. And there is there may be some cost push inflation as well coming in uh, into these dynamics as well. A again, what we have here is is a good initial condition, but we also need to bear in mind that in Latam we have you know, very high indexation mechanisms, and if food inflation goes up for any factor, maybe because rice prices in India are shooting up, maybe because it's something more uh, Latin America driven, uh, this can turn into a broader inflation uh, inflation boom, at least in Brazil, and I would say that in many of the, the Latin countries as well. I think the reason this matters, Vinny makes a good point, because you know we've spoken about the impact on inflation, but inflation expectations in India or in many emerging markets are often driven by food prices, right? So. Yes, Since the bank exactly. can say this is a supply shock, it's a short-run supply shock, uh, uh, but in fact, uh, 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 it sometimes has the hysteresis effect of that is larger through the expectations channel because you buy food every single day and therefore it has a disproportionate influence on shaping inflation expectations one way or the other. Therefore, what could be a three, six-month shock could actually have more ominous uh, implications down the road through the expectations channel. We've, we've done past research on that, uh, Sajid, and we've, we found a, a similar effect um, in terms of, you know, EM food inflation and, and um, you know, these, these effects. Um, there's there's a lot to, there's a lot that I wanted to compliment on. I mean, I think, I think the first, um, you know, the first important point to make here is that, um, you know, we, um, this effect in, in LATAM, particularly in the North, is, is actually, is already starting to be noticed. Um, so, for example, you know, we, we have had some economies where they've actually started, had to start importing, um, importing rice and importing other food stables because of uh, shortfalls in, in food supply. Um, the other point is, uh, you know, for example, and this could actually have broader implications, uh, the, the Panama Canal, uh, levels in the Panama Canal have been falling due to a drought in that part of the world. Um, and so to this point, the, the government had been reducing basically the, the draft level, which is, um, which is, you know, could reduce the amount of tonnage that actually goes through the canal. Um, but over the weekend, they actually reduced by about 10% the, the number of boats that are allowed to pass through the canal. And so, again, in the short term, this may not um, have much of an impact, but in, but but it could be, you know, given the fact that most of the um, most of the freight that goes through the Panama Canal is to or bound for the U.S. Uh, again, this is something to watch. Um, and the last thing I'll say as well is, you know, one thing that that I cover on a weekly basis is in frontier markets. And, and you know, one thing we have been watching is this, you know, is this kind of triple shock of on food prices that we've been we've been we've discussed. So so Sajid mentioned the the, the rice export ban, uh, you know, much of you know Asia and Africa uh, import Indian rice. And so, uh, again, they could be impacted there. Um, the other the other, you know, unfortunate uh 
event that happened two weeks ago was the breakdown of the uh, Black Sea Grain Initiative, um, which helped facilitate the transport of Ukrainian grain. Um, and there again, um, you know, parts of Europe, um, the Middle East and Africa are large uh, uh, consumers of Ukrainian grain. And, and, and again, all of these all of these factors, El Nino, the rice ban, and and this most recent uh, and this most recent development, uh, ultimately reduces the supply of food on global markets. And so again, there could be there could be this this kind of triple shock um, that could push up food food inflation more broadly. Um, and, and and as I said, I mean I think you know many of the markets that are most most vulnerable are some of these kind of lower income frontiers that we we also follow. Um, and so again, I think. And I think that it's it's important to say that yes, there are factors that could mitigate it, such as food supplies. Um, but we are kind of when you put it all together, it feels like we have uh, you know the the signs are pointing towards more upside to food inflation, or you know over the next six to twelve months, after a period of you know a, a you know twelve month period of declining food prices. Um, and so again, I think this is this is something that we're we're watching very closely uh, in in frontier markets and of course in yen more broadly i think that's a good summary point i, I think we want to get close to maybe wrapping up here you know we're looking for uh global headline inflation to continue to decelerate and to you know we're running at close to three and a half right now for the third quarter we think uh with our forecast we're going to drop below three in the fourth quarter potentially back up towards something around three and a quarter by q1 of next year um, and I think that forecast doesn't really build in a large El Nino at this point, right? So I think there's questions around the risk of that forecast. I don't know if any of you guys, uh, particularly covering individual countries, have moved your inflation forecast in the back of El Nino or not. Maybe, Sajid, you have, or I don't know if any of that's happening in, in Latin at this point. But it certainly feels like it does represent some risk to that global outlook. You're right, Mike. Uh, so we have, in fact, been moving this up in the last few weeks. So just to put this in context, the current quarter, uh, the central bank's forecast for headline CPI was 5.2. I think we're tracking closer to 6%. Now, this is not El Nino per se. Uh, a lot of this is just vegetable prices, which surge and then hopefully come down in the coming months. So it's a short cycle crop. But of course, the risk is if El Nino sets in in the next two months, then you get more durable food inflation, and that upsets the apple cart. What are the three things I'd look for in the case of India? You know, what impact, as Katie was saying, that rice export ban has on global rice prices? Number two, I'd look at pulses, which are an important part of our diet. Uh, we don't have buffer stocks of pulses like we have for rice. Uh, and so, you know, uh, if there is a shortfall in production, what does that mean for import demand, global pulse prices, um, and therefore for the inflation trajectory? And the third is the inflation expectations, Sham, that if you're living with six months of high food inflation, does that cause expectations which are coming down to reaccelerate? But for now, important to underscore, not to be allowed, this is still a risk. The fact is in the first two months of the monsoon, the monsoon has been above normal. Uh, the question is what happens in August and September because that's when the El Nino concerns begin to set in. And I think for, for Brazil, the, the, the answer is pretty similar. And I think Sajid, he, he highlighted one thing that is, you know, it's still a risk. We don't have this embedded in our forecasts. Uh, also because, again, as we mentioned at the beginning, you know, every episode seems to be different from one from another. And, but in the case of Brazil, I would say that, you know, the impacts of our own research and other houses are saying that, you know, it could be up to one percentage point of impact in, in inflation next year. We have 3.6, which is a deceleration of inflation, especially core inflation uh, from the last couple of years. 
closer to the target, but quite not there yet. Uh, but what we found interesting is that, you know, the El Nino shows up in Brazil's inflation through meat prices rather than fresh foods per se, and probably as a secondary impact of higher grain costs. You know, is, this is ration for cattle, pork, and, and poultry, and, and, and this would, and has a higher weight uh, uh, on on the CPI, so that's that's the channel that we need to observe to see if it, if it's happened both on the wholesale side and also on the consumer side. But we, we wouldn't expect at this point that you know there would be meaningful impacts on electricity generation in Brazil. As I mentioned to you, reservoirs are full, are close to ninety percent, which is one of the highest levels of the last decade. Uh, so there is. Uh, some leeway at least uh, uh, for disappointment with rainfall next year. So we, it's a risk for Brazil. It's something that may affect food prices, but less so uh, on, on on electricity. That's that's how we are uh, thinking about this at this moment. You know, having in mind the risks, as as Sajid mentioned. Yeah, and I would say that you know more broadly. I mean, you know, as we've been saying, the 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 risks really are still evolving. We need to see the strength, the timing, you know, the regional disparities, uh, you know, the go government's abilities to um, offset the offset the increases in 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 price increase in prices, whether it's via inventories, whether it's just direct subsidization of food, which or or energy or other other you know factors that can impact the El Nino, um, it's you know it's also worth taking into account. And the last point I would say is you know at least in the last kind of few weeks as we've been watching the evolution of prices and um, uh, you know as El as El Nino as the um, Black Sea Grain Initiative breakdown has happened after, since India's um, export ban was announced. So far, we haven't seen a we we have seen um, say a ten to fifteen percent pickup in prices, but it hasn't been enormous yet. And so at this point, it feels like you know again we're still we're still waiting. Um, so it feels like you know modest upside right now, but we need to really watch this um, episode play out in order to to see the to understand the full impact. I think that's great. I think it's a good place to end. So uh, risks, maybe not uh, exceptional risks, but given that the market is currently uh, very hyped up on the idea that a soft landing is coming, it could be a challenge a little bit later. We'll keep you posted as uh, we learn more about uh, how strong El Nino is and how uh, significant the uh, impacts are in various economies. So thank you all for joining me for a very insightful discussion today. Thank you also to our listeners. We look forward to continuing the conversation. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan research reports related to this content for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on August 2nd, 2023.